Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back to Walk Through the Bible. We're so excited to be beginning the second quarter of our study. Can you believe it? It's already time for the second quarter, and we are welcoming some newcomers that have decided to join us and to begin reading with us from today. So hopefully you have downloaded your second quarter reading guide, and I highly recommend that you get the Daily Bible, if at all possible. It's just a very, very easy to read format. They've done all the work for you. It's already in order. It's divided up into 365 daily readings. And at the beginning of each reading is a little summary of what you're about to read. And so it really helps you to understand what you're reading. And then, of course, our time together here each week, I will uh, bring out even more nuggets uh, from your daily reading. So welcome to all of our newcomers. This week, we are covering what's in the Daily Bible, pages 416 through 448, or the dates of April the 2nd through the 8th. Now we have, uh, I wanna give a little review of the first quarter and then a review of last week. In the first quarter, we have read an amazing story of the God of the creator of the universe who decided to create man and then saw that man fall deep into sin. And so he had a plan from all eternity of how to redeem mankind. And he began that plan by choosing one man named Abram. And he promised Abram three things. He said, if you'll follow me to a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will give you that land. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we read the story of how God actually has fulfilled the first two promises. First, he gave Abram a miracle son, and from that son Isaac, the lineage began. The family ended up in slavery in Egypt, but because of his promises to Abraham, God moved and he saved his children from slavery. He brought them out of Egypt in such a miraculous way. The Jewish people today are still celebrating that miraculous uh, exodus from Egypt. He met with them in the desert after he had freed them from Egypt, and he began to reveal himself to his people, and he proposed marriage. And he said, that if you will obey my commandments, if you will obey this covenant with me, you will be my treasured possession above all the peoples of the earth. You will be blessed. And the people said, we will. Now, the funny thing is God knew his people would fall short. He knew they would fall into sin. And he actually gave Moses a song about his people falling away from him. He knew it all along. He wasn't caught by surprise or off guard, but he knew that he was getting into place his redemptive plan to pay the price to redeem mankind. And so we now pick up the story. They have entered the promised land. 
they have fallen deep into apostasy and away from their God, and he would raise up judges to help free them. And finally, they cried out and they said, we want a king. Now, God had been their king all along. He was their king. And here, when they called for a human king, they said, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. It actually offended God because he knew they were far better under his kingship. But God had a plan in place that one day he was going to give them a king. And so he went ahead and he initiated the plan. And the first king he put into place was King Saul. And Saul did not have a heart after the Lord. He rebelled against God and he did not repent and come to God for forgiveness. So the Lord rejected Saul and he put into place David. And in our last week of the, our last session, we read about how that uh, while Saul was king, he was being tormented by these Philistines. And so David, who was a young man at the time and very, very adept with the sling, which is actually used in warfare. It's not a child's toy. Uh, it was deadly. And uh, he was very good at it. And so he slew Goliath. And this made David famous throughout all of Israel. And it made Saul very, very jealous. Even Saul's son, Jonathan, recognized God's favor that was upon David, and he knew that he was going to be the next king. Jonathan would not be taking over the seat of his father, but David would. And so uh, Saul exhibited his jealousy and his hatred of David by crafting a plan to kill him. And that's when Jonathan realized that he needed to help uh, David as he could. And so he tipped him off and David goes running into the wilderness. And we are during, we start this week's reading in the middle of this story. Uh, David is on the run. He's running from Saul. He's running for his life and he's pleading to God. And we have uh, some really special Psalms that David wrote during this time. Now remember, David is a musician. He played the harp. He had been a shepherd as a, as a young man, and I'm sure that he sat out on the hills looking out over the sheep playing songs, and he learned how to worship the Lord. And so he began to write songs, which we call psalms, but the psalms are songs. They were sung. We just have lost the a tune. We don't know the tune that they were played to, but we have the words. And so um, in our daily Bible, one of the first Psalms that they included this week was Psalm 56. This is a very special Psalm. I will tell you, it has ministered to me at times in my life. And it says here where he says, put my tears in your bottle. In God, I trust and am not afraid what can man do to me? And that was David saying, if God has put me in this position, what can man do to me? Can man dislodge me from this position that God has put me in? And of course, the answer is no. 
But then David ended up running to the Philistines because if he lived amongst the Philistines, he was safe there. Saul was not going to come after him in enemy territory. And so David goes to the Philistines, but they recognize him. He can't be anonymous, just an Israelite that has come to live with them. So once he realized they know who he is, he began to feign um, insanity, and he tricked them. It worked, and they said, look, this man's just crazy. Uh, let's let him go. And here we read Psalm 34 that says, Great are the affliction, afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from their all. Have you ever read that scripture? I'm sure you have. You probably have it underlined. The afflictions of the righteous are many, but he delivers them from them all. Not one affliction, not one problem, but God can deliver you from all your problems. This is King David on the run. So he escapes and he goes to a cave. And I always chuckle at this part of the story because it says that he gathered 400 men around him. They're what I call David's motley crew. This was not the, the mighty and the warriors. No, no, no. It says it was those that were in distress, those that were in debt, and those that were discontented. These are the men that rallied around David, and he became their commander. And at this point, we have Psalm 142, and he cries out to the Lord, and he says, I am all alone. And after this, then the warriors began to align themselves with David. But there for a while, this was his motley crew. This is all he had, and he cries out to God from that lonely cave. So then David realizes, okay, it's war. And he's beginning to rally the warriors around him. They came from Gad and from Benjamin. And then it says that he goes to Moab and he leaves his parents in Moab for safety. Now, isn't that interesting? But remember, David's, is it his great-grandmother was from Moab. Who's that? Ruth. The story of Ruth. She was a Moabite woman that joined herself to Naomi and returned to Bethlehem, married Boaz, and she becomes in the line of King David. So because of family rights and because of the culture of the time, uh, his parents were safe in Moab while he's fleeing around in the desert. And now it tells us that David was at an area of the country called Ein Gedi. Now, Ein Gedi is one of my most favorite places in all the world. It is within the barren desert of what's called the Judean wilderness. You know, in America, we think the word wilderness and we think of forest. But in Israel, the term is used to describe a very, very barren part of the country. There is nothing there. Only if you have a live spring would you have any kind of vegetation, a few trees, um, a few animals coming there to drink. But by and large, you're talking about hill after hill after hill of barren landscape. And it's dry. It is hot there. 
and it is so stark, but yet at the same time, it is so majestic. And I love that area of the country, and I particularly love to sit at Ein Gedi and read some of the Psalms of David. And you begin to understand some of the terminology that he uses over and over and over in the Psalms. And even some of the other Psalm writers um, will use this same terminology. So let me describe to you, Ein Gedi is an area with a waterfall, but the waterfall is two or three different levels. And so as a tourist, you can walk back on kind of solid ground and you can see the lower uh, waterfall. But if you've got a little bit of, of energy in you, you can climb up and see the second waterfall. And those that are really ambitious can climb all the way up to the top and see the very top one. What's so interesting here is while you're down here in the bottom at that first layer, you know, you're surrounded by cliffs and on these cliffs are caves. You can see the holes of the caves in the side way up above you. And you begin to understand the terminology of David about the stronghold and about lead me to the rock that is higher than I, because if your enemy is coming after you, you need to be at a high place. And he's surrounded by rocks. And so he described it as a rock that's higher than I. Lead me up to the top so I could see down on my enemies. A place of refuge, a place of safety. A strong tower was a place high up of stone where you were safe, but you could also see out to see what was happening around you. You can just picture this at Ein Gedi. The other thing is that um, it's called, one of the scriptures we read this week, it referred to the crags of the wild goats. And a crag is like a rock, a rock of the wild goats. And every afternoon at about four o'clock, you can sit there at Ein Gedi and you can watch the goat herds or what we call the ibex, herds of them coming in to the water where they're gonna get their drink of water for the day. It's been a long, hot day. And so you can sit there and just watch uh, many of them, tens and 20 at a time. You know, the last time I was down at Ein Gedi, one of the last times, we had the most amazing view. And even our tour guide said they had never seen a herd as big as what we saw. There were at least a hundred of the Ibex goats in this herd. They were crossing the road in front of our bus going into where we had just come out of the Ein Gedi Nature Reserve. You know, when you read Psalm 42, uh, it's debated whether David himself wrote Psalm 42, but I think it's highly likely he may have because it says, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Later on, it says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. You can picture this at Ein Gedi. I feel certain he wrote this song when he was sitting at Ein Gedi. And he, like all the tourists today, at the end of a very long, hot day, would go down and stand under that waterfall, and the water would just break over him. Um, 
As I said, one of the terms that David uses a lot in the Psalms is about a stronghold. A stronghold was a fortress, a built-up area with very, very difficult access. It was a safe place. And there are several scriptures here in 1 Samuel 22 and also in 1 Samuel 24. It says that David went to the stronghold. Now, there are other times where it says David went to the strongholds of Angedi or the strongholds of the region. But there's these couple of references that says he went to the stronghold as though it's a stronghold that everybody knew about. All you had to do was say he went to the stronghold and they knew where that was. And it must have been quite a refuge, quite a place of safety. Well, it just so happens, you know, that maybe just a couple of miles down, I'd have to measure it to see how many miles away, is the huge mountaintop fortress called Matsada. When you go with me to Israel, and I hope you will, and in today's show notes, we've linked to a sign-up form where you can get on an interest list so that once we have our next tour dates, will notify you. I want you to go with me and we definitely will go to the top of Matsada and you will understand then what is a stronghold. Matsada is this tall mountain that's all by itself. It's just one mountain sticking up out of the desert, a very, very deep ravine on all sides of this mountain. And to get up there in ancient days, there you had to crawl, crawl up a um, snake path up the side of the mountain. It takes about 45 minutes to climb up to get to the top. But you and I can take the, um, the pulley car that the Israeli Ministry of Tourism has put in there. You don't have to climb today. But when I was there as a student, we did. Students love to do things like that and expend their energy. We climbed up the snake path. Now, on the back side of Masada, there is still the remains of the old Roman um, uh, path or uh, rampart up to Masada when uh, the Romans actually destroyed Masada and uh, in the year 70 AD, the last stronghold of the Roman siege after they finished Jerusalem, they came down to Masada. And very, very famous story. You can still see that rampart. So climbing up the backside is a little bit easier. Last time I was there, which was, um, I climbed up the backside with a group of young adults. It was just about three years ago. I was so proud of myself. I'll tell you, because it's so hot and it's so dry, it is quite a climb. But we believe that that might be the stronghold that David went to and that is referred to there in our reading. So now let's go back to Saul. While David is hiding out down here, and there's several stories where uh, David has the opportunity to kill Saul twice, and he doesn't. And both times Saul says, I'm sorry, you know, my beloved, I love you, whatever. Uh, But obviously Saul had a real demonic problem that he would then bounce right back and attempt to kill David again. So it was a demonic drive 
the Holy Spirit, God had left Saul, and he had now given himself over to this evil spirit that brought really insanity to him. And so that is the story of his pursuit of David. It's it's absolutely demonic. And David is down uh, in the Judean wilderness seeking God uh, for his life and for his safety. So then we have, you know, Saul knows that God has left him. And he he's not hearing from God from any of the prophets or any of the standard ways. And so he decides to go to a medium, to a spiritus, and call up the spirit of the prophet Samuel, who by now had died, and to hear from God. And this is a very curious story. Um, So I just want to mention it briefly here, that uh, in the story, of course, the spirit of Samuel comes up and the medium screams. I mean, she's so shocked by this. Obviously, it's not because of her that Samuel comes up. It's because God is using this situation to pronounce judgment over Saul, final judgment. And, um, and so, you know, Samuel says, why have you called me up? And he says, well, because I'm not hearing from God in any other way. And then Samuel says, well, you know, it's all over for you. And sure enough, the next day, Saul and his son, Jonathan, are killed in battle. So what's the lesson we take from this? Well, first of all, um, know that mediums and spiritists are absolutely forbidden by God. It's forbidden in the law. Saul knew that, and this story in no way condones this or says that it's okay to do that. We do not know um, whether this was really Samuel or it was just an imposter or it's just that God used the situation in order to speak to Saul. We don't even know that it was really God because, um, you know, the next day Saul dies, so maybe this was a curse Uh, Maybe this wasn't God at all. We don't know. From reading this story, there are so many questions, and there's so many possibilities. And if you Google it and go online, you'll read all kinds of theories, both that this was God, that this was not God, that this was Samuel, that this was not Samuel, that, uh, you know, just all kinds of theories. And so the bottom line here is it was forbidden practice. Saul disobeyed God. And actually, it was the icing on the cake, you might say, in a negative way for Saul. It was all over for Saul. The next day, it was over for him. This was like the crowning blow uh, in all of the wrong things that Saul had done, and it brought an end to his life. So don't try it, okay? Um, I want to say one other thing about Saul before we move on to David. Saul never really repented. He didn't go after God and repent like David did. Later on in our story, David's going to sin, but he's on his face in repentance before God. Uh, Saul did not do that. And um, so it's all over for Saul, and now David becomes king. He's crowned king in Hebron. He's crowned king over Judah uh, first. 
And then he begins consolidating his power. And one way that David consolidates his power is through his wives. So keep in mind, he's still married to Micah, who was uh, the daughter of Saul. So that helped him to solidify the royal house of Saul. He was married to a woman from the south, and he was married to a woman from the north. So this is helping him geographically and territorially uh, to begin alliances around the country. So he's made king and he reigns in Hebron seven years, but then he sets his sight on the city of the Jebusites. And this is the story about Jerusalem. I've been waiting all week to get to talk to you about Jerusalem. This is where things really get interesting and so exciting. So in 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 8, the Jebusites uh, inside the walled city of Jerusalem. Now, let me describe this for you. Jerusalem is uh, technically in the territory of Benjamin, but it's right at the edge and it had never been taken by the Benjamites. It was under Jebusite control. So in a way, it was neutral territory between Benjamin and Judah in the south and the 10 tribes up in the more north and, and east of the country. And it had never been taken by any of the tribes. So even though it was technically part of Benjamin, it was considered neutral. And David saw this as a great way to set up a capital that would serve all the 12 tribes. Secondly, the Jebusite city was a very well-fortified city. It was on a hill, and it had great walls all around it. And um, it was a very hard city to take. So we read the story here in 2 Samuel how the Jebusites are like, taunting David uh, from their walls. And they said, you will not get in here. Even the blame and the, the, sorry, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. So on that day, David said, anybody who conquers the Jebusites will have to enter through the water shaft. Now picture this for me. You have a city up on a hill. This hill has a valley on three sides, or really two sides, because it's like a peninsula, but it's valley all the way around it, except the northern plateau. So in order to enter this walled city, down in one of the valleys was their water source, the Gihon Springs. And the water was taken inside the city for the people, but it was also taken outside of the city for the crops that they grew here in the Fertile Valley. So the water source was like an open hole down here in the southern wall of the city, where people could come uh, and go and take the water out into the fields. And so David said, that is the only way into the city. And, um, and so he says, the, uh, and that's why they say, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. They didn't think anybody uh, could enter the city. 
So David says, who's going to lead for me? Who's going to take the city? And Joab said, I will. And so Joab goes in through the water source and he takes the city and David moves in and takes up residence in the palace. And so from there, they then build up the city and they build up terraces in the city. And David then makes an arrangement with Hiram of Tyre, which is in Lebanon today, where they have beautiful cedar trees and juniper trees. And so, uh, and they also were Phoenicians and they were very good at craftsmen and of building. And so he made an arrangement where Hiram would build his palace. And uh, now we've read that story this week. Well, I want you to know that the skeptics in the theology world and the biblical world, the archaeology world for years said there was no evidence that there was this King David. Only the Bible mentions this man. We've never found anything that mentions King David. And when it comes to Jerusalem, there's no way that there was a city of Jerusalem the size that's described in the Bible because there was no water source. A city that size had to have a water source. There's no proof of any water source. None of this is true. And what happened is in uh, 1867, the British um, sent a team to the Holy Land to survey and look for water for the poor people in the old city of Jerusalem. At that point, Jerusalem was basically what we see today as the walls around the old city. That's as big as it was back then. They were just beginning to build outside of the old city by 1865. So here in 1867, the British arrive and they are going to look for a water source for the city of Jerusalem. Well, they also were very interested in finding artifacts from the biblical time, but um, they had one problem, and that is that the place where the temple had been on the Temple Mount was ruled. Uh, the Muslims would not allow them to do any digging there. So uh, this engineer named uh, Sir Warren went, they, they said he could not dig within 40 feet of the Temple Mount. So he went out 41 feet and he's now outside of the city walls, and he just begins to dig. And what does he uncover? The ancient city of David and the water source, the Gihon Springs, that everybody said didn't exist. Years later, they have done a lot of study, and they've discovered that uh, at the time of Jesus, the walls of Jerusalem encompassed all that area where he was digging. But today in the modern Jerusalem, when uh, the Muslims rebuilt the walls back about 600 years ago, they made a mistake and they didn't encompass that area. So nobody really realized it was a part of ancient Jerusalem. And here he is, he finds the heart of ancient Jerusalem, right below the Temple Mount. 
And so we have this amazing proof that the Gihon Springs was there, that there was a water source, that Jerusalem was there, and it could have been the size that the Bible said. And since uh, 1967, Israel has been able to uh, dig in that area and to do more archaeological finds. And I have to tell you, what they have been discovering in the last 20 years there in what's called the City of David is absolutely astounding. And they were looking for David's palace, but of course they can't dig everywhere. They're just digging in certain locations where there's not an, a building there in the way. And um, But they uncovered a Phoenician column top. And then they knew we are on top of David's palace because Hiram, the Phoenician, built his palace. So to have a column with that kind of stone top on it is exactly what the Bible says was being built. And so they began to dig more there and they have uncovered what they believe to be David's palace. So isn't that exciting? And I want to tell you in our resource this week, I'm going to tell you about a really exciting resource that so you can go and you can see all of this. So hold on just one more minute. I want to just tell you one last thing before I wrap it up. It's very, very interesting that when Jesus went to Jerusalem, although we know he healed many people, but during his time in Jerusalem, we only have two specific stories of specific healings that we know about. One was the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and the other one was the blind man who he sent down to the pool of Siloam, which is taking water from the Gihon Springs, and he was healed. The blind and the lame had welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem, the city of David. Now, my friends, you cannot make this stuff up. This is why it is so exciting that we dig down into the layers and that we take a look at the archeology span even and what it's speaking to us. So today in our show notes, we link to uh, two different things. One is, our Tour to Israel interest list. If you are interested in going to Israel with me one day, maybe next year, sign up so we can let you know once we have dates and we have a package together for you. Secondly, we are selling very, very low-cost DVD produced by our good friends who we love so much at CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network. It's called Written in Stone, the House of David. It's only $9.99. Please get this DVD. You are going to be able to hear the story I just told you. You're going to see some of the archaeological remains that I've talked about today, and next week I'm going to talk about even more. So go ahead and order your DVD. You'll want to watch it several times as we go through this study, and you're going to see the amazing archaeological finds that support our biblical narrative because the Bible is true. It is so accurate. Now, I also want to ask you, please subscribe to this channel. You're going to get weekly notices or whenever we put up a new program, it'll send you a notice. 
Uh, make sure you're also on my email list so that every week you'll get my email where I give just a little recap of our teaching from this week. So you can read it, uh, then you can watch it later when you have time. Uh, but please subscribe to this channel so we want to know that you are with us and we want to keep you informed and engaged with us throughout this quarter and the rest of our year-long walk through the Bible. So until next time, God bless.